I mean, they've almost like they've gone through a Maoist camp. where they've been brainwashed to see the world in a terrible way that's at odds with the liberty. On this episode of Liberty Curious, I was joined by Barry Brownstein, Professor Emeritus of Economics and Leadership, to discuss how our personal grievances are a threat to liberty. Hayek argued that socialism requires a government with unlimited powers to give groups with grievances what they think they are entitled to. It's not just the type of government that they want. It's not just that. It's the way they're taught to live their lives. When we build our identities around our personal grievances, we play into the hands of illiberal politicians and ideologies that promise to solve all of our problems for us at the cost of our inner and outer freedom. Barry explains that our individual mindset has a ripple effect that shapes the society around us. If you enjoy this podcast, you can also listen to it on Google, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can go on there and leave a rating for the podcast so we can expose more ears to the ideas that support liberty. You wrote in your piece right at the beginning, Holding on to grievances leaves little space in our minds to commit to the timeless values that facilitate human cooperation. Yeah, so if you think about your markets, say, you know, depend upon trust, right? The, you know, kind of great system depends upon trust, that you trust other people. Um, the more you don't trust other people because there's all this friction in your head, the markets start to, you know, break down, right? You um, go into stores, you pretty much um, trust the other party in the transaction to uh, deliver what they promise. Uh, in societies that are more you know, tribal, you don't trust anybody outside your own tribe, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Everybody outside your own tribe is not to be you trusted. Now, they can't have a market economy, can they? Um, tribal countries cannot have a market country, I mean, economy, because they can't trust anybody outside of their own tribe. So that's a uh, big, big issue for us to see, you know, as our country descends more into tribal thinking. One of your questions that you ask at the beginning of your article is a question for people to think about, which is what if it turns out our grievances are setting the stage for socialism and the destruction Mm -hmm. of liberty? So Mm -hmm. what does this look like? What do grievances look like, our own personal grievances, and and how can you elaborate on what you mean there? Well, um, you know, it can, you know, start out small with a, a twinge of annoyance at something where you feel like I haven't gotten enough. And then you start going over that you know, grievance. And again, I'm not talking about with, you know, society, I haven't gotten a, enough from this person in my life, for instance. Um, I have a small grievance. And then you start kind of churning it in your head more and more and more. And you feel very, you know, justified in how you're thinking about it. And that um, twinge of annoyance ends up being a full-blown, you know, grievance. And then um, grievances become how you see the world. Your mind is so focused on your grievances that it becomes easy enough to then start to think, well, I'm not getting enough from, you know, everybody else in the world. You know, society owes me more. I've been screwed. I'm a victim. Um, here's my whole list that proves. And then you spend so much of your time you know, during the day going over things that prove you're a victim, right? And then it becomes a matter of if you're a victim, who should fix it? (laughs) You know, society, government should fix it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm going to elect somebody who's going to fix things so that I'm no longer a victim. But it started how you lived your, your personal life. It started, it can start small. Now, that seems uh, absurd, but it's not because it's your orientation. If all during the day you're unaware 
of how much of your your thinking is about um, grievances and stuff if you're not just not aware of it, and they could be small ones even, but it, it builds up. If all during the day you're not aware of how much of your your thinking is about this, it's like the horse. Um, you're on the ground and you're trying to hold on to the horse and the horse is um, dragging you along the you know ground I and mean, you're not in you know you know charge of our mind you know each person has a mind for them to use and if you're being dragged around by thinking you're not aware of that's a big big problem so i encourage people to become more aware of their thinking, just um, just more aware, and to you know, kind of tune into it, and you'll be shocked. You will honestly be shocked, and, and then as you become shocked, that's a good first step. Then the you know second step is to see how much it's costing you in your life. You know, right. to become shocked enough that you say, "Oh my God, this is stopping me from you know, living a really rich." full life, right? And because so much of my brain width is occupied by this useless nonsense going on in my head, I can't possibly fulfill my purpose that that I have set out for myself. Well, this is really interesting because, you know, if we think about the Soviet Union, communism, that's a great example of that kind of mindset, right? Of of mm-hmm. the mindset, I guess, of resentment. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say that socialism is the mindset of envy and resentment. So you have all these grievances, right? You have these grievances in that situation against the bourgeois. Mm-hmm. And so what happens then, Barry? How did that yeah. play out in the USSR? There's a lot of Soviet era jokes about that people would sadly, assume everybody around them fail so that they feel they're not as envious as other people. Now, that's you know, very sad as opposed to the opposite mindset of you're glad when other people you know, succeed because as other people you know, succeed, there's um, synergies you know, it's not a um, zero sum where they're not succeeding at your expense. The pie can expand, right? And under, you know, communism, it was a doggy dog zero sum where everybody was fighting for their share of the pie and um, of a fixed pie. And they were glad when other people failed. They took pleasure when other people failed. And as I said, there's all types of Soviet era jokes about this because your people understood this to be part of the sick culture that they were part of. Now, it was a sick culture because they were not cultivating timeless values that help human beings flourish. They were cultivating values that destroy flourishing, right? So that's how they were spending their time. And it's no accident that they were impoverished. And it's no accident that the system they created um, you did this. It, you know, they created the system. It's not the system you did it to them. I mean, there is a circle where it there's a feedback, you know, after it gets going, the system creates more of that type of thinking. But it was the internal mindset that created it in the, in the you know, first place. Um, yeah. I can see this mindset around me nowadays. Mm. Mm. How we so? see that. Well, I think mm. that we see this a lot with the far left. And we also see this with elements of the far right. There's this idea that uh, they have these grievances and they want what is theirs. And I don't even know if they know what it is. But they know that they can't get along in life. They don't know how to make it, let's say. They don't yeah. know how to be successful. They don't know really what to do. And so they they look at perceived injustices of the present and also real injustices of the past. And I think that they look for that as a way to say, this is why I failed. And now I mm. need the government or somebody else to come fix it for me. Or, you know, at worst, we need to overthrow 
the the current system, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what happened back in mm-hmm. in uh, a century ago. Yeah. Well, yeah, they have no idea who they are. That's the problem. They've you know created this false identity uh, of them as a victim that's covering up who they are. And their thoughts and feelings, and this is something all of us do, so I'm not just pointing the finger over here. If you become a student of your thoughts and feelings and just see it, and I don't mean to be you know, preoccupied with it at all, and that's not a, a you know, good idea, so I'm not saying it. But if just some your time of the day, you just you know, tune into it, just get quiet, and see the noise that's going on in your head, because it is very you know, noisy. Those you know, 50,000 thoughts a day are often very, you know, loud, um, raucous, and everything else. But the thoughts and feelings are covering up who we actually are. We don't want to know who we are. I mean, that's true of, you know, some people. And the thoughts and feelings are the barrier that they have created between, you know, discovering who they are and between, you know, taking the risks in their life that it takes for them to go forward towards that. And then, of course, for their own failure, they have to find somebody else to blame. But if they would just start to remove the varnish, the, you know, varnish is not the system that's holding them back. The varnish is their own mindset, the way of seeing the world. And they could just be a little bit more quiet and and start a process in order to see that. They would be amazed at the progress they would make and how their grievances then would start to drop. The more you have a purposeful life, the less you feel these grievances. So do you think that if we compare, let's say, the, the, the Russian Revolution... And we compare the American Revolution. What was the mm. difference of mindset? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's something to you to talk about for days, um, <laughs> isn't it? But yeah. uh, there is uh, nobody outside of college campuses who are inspired by, you know, Lenin or any other thinkers there, right? There is. Nobody's studying yeah, their great words and deeds outside of college campuses, but all, uh, uh, all, uh, all over the world, wherever freedom is valued, um, Jefferson is valued and studied because his ideas were yet a transcendent and immortal. They came from something deeper than his ego, right? They were part of the heritage of mankind, right? Not the rantings of an insane man. Uh, So um, Lenin was an insane man um, who was completely consumed by his ego, right? And who but the insane would care to even open up and see any of his ideas now over a century since he's died. But... Um, Jefferson is still studied and will be, you know, studied, you know, forever. And the other founders, too, because they were engaged in, you know, transcendent ideas that uh, each person, each person has rights that are inherent in each person, right? As opposed to the state gives you rights and the state is all powerful, um, so very different polar opposites. And and how is that related to your idea of not living for grievances? Well, if the you know state is not going to fix your life for you, if the state is not your big your daddy, right? Um, you have to find that place in you that's the best in you, right? And to find that place in you that's the best in you, um, you have to engage in a process, right? You have to you do things that uh, develop that side of you. I like to put it like this. Each of us has a right mind and a wrong mind and the power for us to choose, 
right? Every human being is the same. And that's enormous some responsibility, right? We have a right mind and a wrong mind. Um, the you know, wrong mind, as we've you know, gone over already today, is that chatterbox in our head, that ego noise that puts us in conflict with everybody and everything. That's our wrong mind. It's just a, to return to that for guidance is just going to create at least a bad day for us and everybody around us, right? And if we you know, choose that enough, going to have a you know, miserable life, you know, that's going to be devoid of all meaning. So you wrote, holding on to grievances, we build our self-concept Mm-hmm. around being mm-hmm. against mm-hmm. something. So it goes yeah. even beyond that. It goes beyond having a bad day. It goes to the point where you can actually build your self-concept around it. So what does that right. look like? Well, yeah, if we go back to getting out of bed, you'll see there's a moment when you open your eyes where the day is really totally fresh and new. And then you almost reach for your grievances. You almost reach for them. You start to think now you're kind of, uh, grievances could be, um, okay, I have to talk to that person this afternoon. And then you start going over, you know, scenarios in your head, right? Or you don't like your partner, you don't like what they did last night. And if you don't, you know, reach for it, it would be gone, but then you, you know, kind of, you know, you grab hold of it. Oh, that's right. I have to think about and justify why I'm still going to be mad at him or her today. <laughs> right? Because it would naturally go away on its own. Your right mind would just drop it on its own. Right? You can see Start this. Start fresh. Right. Yeah. If you, if you don't have a second and third thought that uh, justifies it, it would go away on its own. So we kind of get reach for these things, and then the day starts to get out of our hands. And, and then if it's something that we haven't thought of, we go on, we get on our phone, and we see what's going on in the world, and we're right back into it. And you feel like going back to bed. But here's the thing, though. It's our self-concept that you're generating our behavior, not the other way around. So this is an important point. Because of the fact we have a self-concept of ourselves as separate, isolated beings at war with everybody else, you know, and sometimes we have the, you know, facade of you know, cooperation if things are going our way, right? That's important. If things mm-hmm. are going our way, I like you. If things are not going <laughs> my way, all of a sudden, I don't like you anymore, right? So um, we have this you know, facade of, you cop- of really you know, cooperation, but it's very shallow. So our self-concept as separated, isolated beings is the thing that drives our search for, you know, to find the external, you know, grievance. So it's important to remember who we are. It's important to remember who we are. It's important for us to remember our values, our purpose, to, to see our place in the greater pattern of things to uh, you see our place as just part of a of a whole that's not isolated dots and, and then with that self concept with that self concept we're not searching for other people to fill us up anymore we're already starting you know kind of full because that's a very richer you know self concept that drives our your purpose and then we don't have to be in conflict to get what we want because we're already starting rich. So um, we're not starting poor in our mind. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about poor in our, you know, kind of self-concept. So, yeah, this is and this is a really powerful thing. Um I, I've seen, you know, somebody named David Goggins, who he ended up being uh, becoming a Marine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm. And he 
talked about all of the grievances that he had and his mindset and that journey and how he changed it, where he was extremely overweight. He wasn't going anywhere in life. He didn't know how he was going to get a job. He had a very uh, violent and dysfunctional childhood. His father had even put a gun to his head at some point. And uh, he was basically set up to... Uh, to fail if he would have just followed all of those grievances to their ultimate conclusion. And so that's kind of what he did. He had that victim mentality. All of these things have happened to me and therefore I can't succeed. But then he started to just, he had this epiphany and and he said, I just have to start fixing my life myself. You know, nobody else is going to do it for me. He also was given a lot of messages about the fact that he's black and how that had mm -hmm. something to do with the struggles that he had, but he didn't want to be defined by his race. He mm -hmm. didn't want to live inside of that kind of identity politics realm. But this is, is where we see a lot of uh, the the grievances play out on, on a broader scale. So I'm just going to read something that you wrote here about this. You said, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay wrote in their book, Cynical Theories, the contemporary social justice movement is a worldview that centers social and cultural grievances and aims to make everything into a zero-sum political struggle revolving around identity markers like race, sex, gender, sexuality, and many other things. So can you elaborate on, on you know, what this looks like and, and how this kind of identity politics has kind of reached this fever pitch in America? Yeah. Everybody, if you sit down with anybody and hear their story, um, you know, I hear about this person has privilege and somebody else is not privileged. If you sit down with anybody, you will be amazed at the human drama and struggle in everybody's life. Um, there's certain um, universal things, um, independent of race and sex and all this other stuff that people, you know, go through. The your flavor may you know, be not the same, um, but the you know, struggle between, as have you described, you know, Gogans is his name. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. That he had you know, gone through is a it's you know, valuable to other people. It's a universal. Right, because we could all see ourselves in his struggle, even though he's black, because all of us have our own you know, challenges that we've gone through, and um, to you know focus on individual markers of our identity and say that you know defines us is as he found out for himself is to set yourself up for you know failure. There's nobody, I have never met anybody who does not have a, you know, problematical life, you know, in the sense that if you encourage them to share their struggles and, you know, stories, they can fill up an evening where they're the <laughs> hero of their challenges. Now, admittedly, some people have more challenges, right? Admittedly. But there is nobody who can't see in other people you know, their own you know, challenges and struggles and that all of us have to get you to know, transcend and not allow it to get you to know, define us. And that's part of the secret of a, you know, you know, good life to not be defined by your circumstances. Um, because, because no circumstance, nobody has the power to alter how you think your thoughts are your thoughts, even though it seems to you, it seems to all of us when we're in our wrong mind that our thinking is being created through our circumstances, right? If we're in our wrong mind, we are certain how I'm thinking right now, if I'm upset, I'm upset because A, B, and C. I can tell you why I'm upset, A, B, and C. That's an indication of a wrong-minded thinking. You're not upset because of A, B, and C. You've pinned your upset on A, B, and C. That's a big difference. 
Okay. That's a big difference. Um, a, B, and C may have you brought out in you the you know, weaker part of your minds. That's fine. That may be true. Um, but you chose at that moment to bring them out and then uh, justify it because of these external you know, circumstances. So um, we all have the power of choice. And even though we don't all exercise it every day throughout the day, we don't. There isn't nobody who doesn't get caught up in thinking that their thoughts and feelings are coming from the outside. But that choice to think your thoughts and feelings are coming from the outside is a maladaptive answer to not take responsibility. That's when you're trying to dodge, you know, responsibility, that's the way you're going to think. And um, so I want to come back to communism, uh, come back to fascism, we could look at as well national social socialism, we can look at now what we see this new kind of neo Marxism or critical theory plus postmodernism, uh, melange uh, with social justice, whatever you want to call the the ideology uh, du jour, uh, but it seems to be that this these are the kind of ideologies that are being taught to people on a mass scale to say you should be looking at the world through your grievances. You should. This is the right way to go about life. Um, mm -hmm. So is this? what do you think, why do you think that is? And why do you think that it's so seductive for people? Why is it, why has it spread like a fungus over the, over the earth? I weep for our future when I hear what you just said, because I see the same thing. And I, there's a generations now uh, especially the current generation has been educated. I mean, they've almost like they've gone through a Maoist camp where they've been your brainwashed to see the world in a terrible way. That's at odds with the liberty. It, it's not just the type of government that they want. It's not just that. It's the way they're taught to live their lives, right? That's what you're you're pointing to, right? Yes. It's the way they're taught to live their lives is at odds with the human you know, freedom. And if there's not a you know, turnaround, I don't know what the future's going to hold. You know, if somebody would just you know, say to me, well, Barry, this can't be reformed. The only thing to do is to cut off funding for higher education. I wouldn't argue with that. I wouldn't argue with that. Um, all this you know, terrible stuff is being subsidized, and we're paying for it, and I don't think it can be reformed. I think, it, as you said, it's like a fungus. If you have a you know, your fungus, I, you have to start again almost, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. You have to start again. So stop subsidizing it would be a great first step. But um, it's, you know, terrible the way they live. Uh, um, it's just a horrible, horrible thing the way they're currently you know, living and the way they see the world. And... <clears throat> As I said, it's at odds with the human, you know, flourishing on their own lives. And then when their own lives fail, they're going to expect somebody to bail it out for them. And, uh, <laughs> and um, it's not, you know, sustainable. So, so I'm going to tie this in with something that you wrote, but I don't know if you were writing it with this in mind, but I think that it's connected. So okay. you said... Collectively, our grievances can be exploited to create tribal hatred. Mm -hmm. Such hatred can last for centuries. Now, my question to you is, do you think that the tribal hatred that began, let's say, with the French Revolution mm. uh, and then, you know, moved into 
socialist thought uh, in in the late 19th century and then moved into uh, manifestations of communism and socialism and then fascism and now this. Do you think that that's what that is? It's hatred that lasts for centuries? Well, um, <clears throat> you know, if I had a forecast, um, the next 20, 40 years at least is going to be very Iraqi. So is it going to go on for your centuries? I don't know. But the next 20, 40 years is going to be very rocky. But at the same time, it's not, it's not a fixed outcome. This is no means fixed that it has to be rocky. Our decisions are very important for the worst to not happen. But our tribal hatreds... Um, you know, societies that are governed by them are not a pretty place to live. Nobody is moving into those countries. <laughs> Nobody wants to live there. Uh, Nigeria, for instance, has over 300 tribes. I mean, that's unbelievable. Um, 300 tribes. And each tribe thinks the other tribe is, you know, pretty bad. You can't intermarry, you know, between tribes. Hmm. Uh, and... And so on a source vote, you don't trust anybody outside the tribe. Now, um, Nigeria isn't even a hot spot. Uh, you bring it up, it's not even a hot spot of your trouble, but nobody would be interested to you know, move there um, <laughs> because um, tribal you know, societies do not function you know, very well. And once it becomes ingrained, once the tribal way of seeing the world, which is essentially a barbarian way of seeing the world, you know, it goes back for thousands of years. It goes back to the dawn of history for, for, for good. You know, you found safety in the tribe. You, you did find safety in the tribe. And your people always say to me each time I bring up about the tribe, oh, you don't even know anything about history. Of course I know something about history. Um, I know that you had to be safe in the tribe back then. But now we have to outgrow that. We can't kind of go back to your primitive ways of thinking. Our country was founded that... We'd be not based on tribes, but based on principles, right? We were based on principles, not our tribal identity. And now there are people are, you know, interested in you know, sending us back to the Stone Age. Well, you know what Hayek said? He gave a very powerful warning about how it takes thousands of years, hundreds of years at least, to build up the spontaneous order, which we all depend upon. And in part, it takes that long because morals, you know, traditions have to be spread and have to be imbued in the culture. And that takes hundreds of years. Right. Now, well, what, well, wait, I just want to finish what he said, though. What was built over the eons can be you know, destroyed in a few years. That was his warning. It's not you know, symmetrical. It's not like a long, steady, downward ride down. Right. It could be boom. If those principles, morals, you know, traditions are thrown out the window, as they are being now, as you say, are all thrown out the window the you know, decline could be astonishingly quick. Like, we may not have <laughs> that much time to turn things around. I believe that civilization is hanging on by a thread right now. Well, that's, you know... Very, very interesting, Barry. And that's kind of what I was what I was getting to at the core of all of this is that Hayek wrote The Road to Serfdom, what, in the 1940s? Right. And, and he was saying, this looks like this is where we're going if we don't uh, maintain our individual liberty and if we don't do things as individuals to prevent this. So mm -hmm. my question to you just before this was about that was, was the time, the era where Hayek wrote that book, was that... Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, 
the point where we were already headed towards the Stone Age and like we had this kind of illusion that we mm -hmm. had reverted back towards more kind of liberal principles for a certain period of few decades. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we were still uh, going downhill. Well, what's interesting, I've probably gone through serfdom, I don't know, seven, eight, nine to ten times. And until the past few years, each time I would go through it, it was kind of an academic exercise about what could happen. And you saw that it could happen, but you didn't feel it viscerally. You didn't feel it, oh my God, we're right in the midst of it. Now, each time I go through it now, it's visceral. It's like he's writing today's headlines. He's sharing what's behind today's headlines. And you almost have to underline every sentence because it's ripped out of today's headlines, even though it was published in 43. And so it's no longer academic about what might happen. It is happening right now. And anybody who's aware has to be terrified of the consequences for our future and our kids' future. Um, have to be terrified because we're all part of, you know, society and, you know, people who think they're somehow going to escape the consequences because they have enough of a food storage or enough Bitcoin or something are sadly you know, deluded. <laughs> you know? Um, we all depend on human cooperation. And you know, believe me, even the most ardent prepper is not going to think of everything. <laughs> and you know, they don't want to be around in a world where people are at each other's throats. They don't want to be around for that. So the best, you know, preparation is not to build your storage and everything, although, you know, if somebody is drawn to do that, that's fine. But the best, you know, preparation is to, you know, prevent it from happening in the first place. That's the best preparation. Right, right. No, I, I hear what you're saying. So, you know, you write about this in, in everything that you write. It's about this idea that every individual has the capacity uh, to change the world around them by changing their own life, not by mm. creating some utopian scheme for society, which is what all of these illiberal regimes are, are premised upon, right? The idea right. is mm. it starts with you. So, right. um, okay, what what about politicians though? Like let's let's focus on that for a little bit. Mm -hmm. What do they do? when everybody has all of these kinds of grievances, when there's a lot of tensions, when there's a lot of conflict, when there's a lot of fighting, when there's a lot of people rallied up in the streets, how do the politicians capitalize upon this uh, in such a way that uh, we, we give our liberty away? Well, they're going to, history says, they're going to exploit it, right? And... You know, I hate to say it, but you people may, you know, look back if things don't get you turned around and think about the good old days of Trump and Biden. <laughs> now, that's a very, you know, scary thought, but they may think about Trump and Biden as very, you know, benign, you know, characters um, because... The COVID um, era was just a blip <laughs> on the radar. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, compared to what history says could happen... If enough people turn to their wrong mind, because they don't accept, you know, responsibility, they're focused on your grievances, they have no purpose, they have no values, or they've you know, lost their values, and they've lost their purpose, because their mind is um, driven, it's been made mad by hate. I like to put it that way. Your mind could be mad, made mad by hate. And that would mean that more of the day you're in your wrong mind. You can't totally snuff out your, you know, the your part of your mind that is right-minded. You can't snuff it out, but you could spend you know, most of your day being wrong-minded. And history says when enough people are wrong-minded, um, your politicians will exploit that and the type of, uh, you know, society that they will create is not going to be pretty 
the you know constitution right now has almost been thrown out you know people don't know the principles in the constitution and and you know but it's still there for the courts to turn to but um yeah it, it it would not be a very pretty situation so we have to do everything we can to you know prevent that so um how does this actually how does this look like can you give me an example of a world where people do start to be as you would put it in their right mind and where they would stop focusing most of their energy on their grievances um has what does that look like well it would be you know create a very you know, virtuous you know, circle right because the more happiness as you know victor you know frankel you pointed out cannot be obtained you know directly so people um think they can obtain it by getting what they want oh if i get this house a car or a lover i'll be happy right or a job um, i'll be happy um victor frankel said what he he said happiness can only be obtained through in direct means, okay, as a byproduct of a life that's focused on values and purpose, okay, indirectly. Right. I, I think I'm I'm remembering the specific no. quote that you're talking no. about because no. I read Man's In Search of Meaning not long no. ago, no. and he spoke about uh, instead of it being the pursuit of happiness, it should be the pursuit of meaning, and that right. happiness exactly. is a byproduct of that yeah. meaning. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the more people that focus on purpose, your meaning, the, the more people are happier indirectly, you know, not happier because they went out and got a Tesla. <laughs> you know, or, you know, or I got the 6,000 square foot house or whatever, and on and on and on. Um, you know, they're they're happy because they're living a purposeful life. They're more honest. They're easier to you know, deal with. Um, trust expands in the economy. Um, friction falls because the absence of trust is a friction on the economy. All right. Um, they're not turning to government to you know create their purpose, to create meaning for them. They're not looking to some strong man, you dictator to give them meaning in their meaningless lives, right? So there's no demand for bad politicians. There's more of a demand for um, virtuous politicians, but, you know, virtuous politicians, you still have to have checks and balances on power, of course, but the system works better if at least you're not electing, you know, corrupt people at the start, you know, that there's far better chance of a good outcome there. So everything starts, you know, revolving in a virtuous, you know, circle. And the more human beings flourish, um, the more the pie expands for us all. And it keeps going in a very virtuous way, as opposed to the opposite um, circle where it's contracting on ourselves, where we're not living out of purpose. We're you know, living for you know, grievances, and then politicians exploit that. And we're fighting over a fixed pie. We're fighting over a shrinking pie. And there's more you know, tribal hatreds, and it, it's not going to be pretty. So it's a it's a clear fork in the road, isn't it? You know, um, you said something there about uh, people wanting a kind of strongman dictator mm -hmm. to come mm -hmm. in there and, and give meaning to their lives. And this is mm -hmm. what we've seen in all of the major collectivist movements, right? It's this ready-made yeah. ideology where they say, here you go. You don't have to think about it anymore. You don't have to think about the meaning in your own individual life. You don't have to figure out what kind of career you want to pursue, what kind of school you want to put your children in, anything else. All of your choices will take care of them. All of your mm -hmm. energy is going to go towards the state and right. into the goals, the collectivist goals of the state and, and making this a better nation state for everybody around us. Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, do you want to expand a bit on that? Yeah, I, you know, 
we saw this during your COVID. We saw this during your COVID, where you're taking responsibility for your health is an often messy, tricky thing, right? There's no certainty about anything in the early days of COVID. I understand why people were frightened. I understand why people were frightened. I can understand why people felt they had to rush out and get the shot. They were you know, very frightened. And But then when you don't want to take responsibility, when you want to turn it over to the experts, you want other people to be forced to do the same thing that you did because you don't want to see that you had a choice also. You mm. see, you are trying to block out of your mind that life is messy and that you have to choose among options that you don't know where it's going to lead. So if somebody got chooses for you, you could go up back to watching Seinfeld all night. <laughs> that's, you know, that's very insightful. And Viktor Frankl, if you know, thinking of him, uh, yeah. he spoke about this as well. Of course, Viktor Frankl wrote his book, or he was trying to write it on scraps of paper while he was in concentration camps. Mm -hmm. right. And he, what he did was he observed how men behaved in those circumstances, which were horrendous circumstances that is very hard to imagine ourselves in their shoes if right. we try. Right. Um, but and what he, he said was that it was people who still had to make decisions right. there. Exactly. That, that, that's a very powerful passage, isn't it? You know, he, he said there were some people who with their last, you know, scrap of bread, they were starving, their last scrap of bread, they gave it to other people. They still gave it to other people that they still had not lost their humanity under the most horrific circumstances. And he you pointed to... He will never believe, he will never believe in excuses that you don't have the power of choice because he saw for himself that even under the most horrific circumstances, people have the power of choice. So that was a powerful message and passage from there. Um, yeah, so, um, and this is, again, this is things that you talk about uh, and you write about often. It's it's the same kind of first principle, as you're right. saying, which is that, you know, having this individual psychological freedom, trying to attain that, of course, it's a process, as you say, it's not perfection, but, but that process of trying to attain psychological mm -hmm. freedom and mm -hmm. being able to make the choices uh, are important for your own life and also as they ripple out into society. So um, can you maybe just as, as a kind of last thought for our podcast together, um, yeah. can you maybe just, just cap that up? Yeah. Well, it, again, as you said, it's a process and we're not looking for, you know, perfection in this process. If even one time a day you catch yourself in the act of blaming somebody else, you know, of saying, well, I have these thoughts because of this person or whatever, um, you know, catch yourself in one time of the day being annoyed and then seeing the, it build to a full-blown, you know, grievance. One time a day or even a week, the compounding is enormous. I could tell you this from... The past 30, 40 years where I've been engaged in the process and people I've yet taught this to, um, you know, some people have, you joked with me, you screwed me for life because I can never go back to my old way of thinking now. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because the old way of thinking in, in some ways, even though, as you said, it's misery, it's it's easier to have <laughs> to to fall back those patterns, but you're miserable, so it's not really easier. So this is easier, I, and that's you know where maybe misery loves company yeah. comes from because it's I, oh. it's this idea that we can commiserate with people when we have grievances. It's very relatable. If you have oh. grievances, you'll find a lot of friends. And you could start a proletarian revolution with them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
my yeah. goodness. Yeah. So it, it, it does come down to our power of choice to make the, even in a little one each day, like the example that I like to give is you're in line in, in the supermarket and you see somebody in front of you has 15 items in the 10 item you check out. And are you starting to get furious or, or not? That's that's a very good uh, good kind of litmus <laughs> test, isn't it? Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so yeah. last question for you, Barry. Yeah. Then I know that things are very very dark right now. They're very very mm -hmm. heavy. It's mm -hmm. nice to be having mm -hmm. a conversation about these things because you know it gives me hope. Um, so I guess my last question to you is. Do you have hope? Do you still have hope that, you know, that individuals can can turn things around in their own lives and that that will trickle out into society? Yeah, I'm just giving a deep sigh and pause over there because I feel like I want to answer this here carefully um, because things to some extent can easily seem hopeless right now. You know, we seem to be going down a bad path. And we can continue to go down this bad path and things will get worse. Um, but at the same time, you do see signs in all areas of life where people are seeing there is a better way. There is another way to live. And so... Uh, each of us can only control our own mind. We don't have any power over somebody else's mind. But the choice that each of us can make that we're talking about today, um, there are other people doing the same thing, you know, considering the same ideas, you're writing about the same ideas. And if enough people start to get off the hamster wheel that we're currently on, um, things don't have to get worse. Um, but um, I just cannot offer any guarantees. So I'm not going to give any, you know, false hope. I, I think the hour is very late. Uh, the hour is very late. And our obligation, our, you know, responsibility to get up on the right side of the bed hasn't ever been greater. It's never been greater. You know, in our, look, there's been suffering all through history. I get that. But I'm talking about in our lives, in our, you know, collective lives, the your planet has been getting better. You By and by, it's been, you know, getting better. So in our lives anyway, the responsibility that each of us has to get up on the right side of the bed has never been greater. That's the way I see it right now. And I hope people take that responsibility. Are they going to? I don't know. I just don't know. Well, Barry, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for joining me here on Liberty Curious, and I hope to have you back again very soon. Um, thank you so much, Catherine. It was, uh, as always, a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh -huh.